You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist, a hematologist, and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank you all so much for joining us on this podcast episode to discuss highlights from the 2023 American Society of Hematology annual meeting. Today, for the third year in a row, I'm very Happy to announce we're joined by Dr. Lee Greenberger, who is the Chief Scientific Officer and Senior Vice President at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Lee, you returned from ASH recently, and I want to thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about highlights from the American Society of Hematology meeting. So I wanted to ask you, I think similar to the last two years, as we look at meetings and sort of advances and how much was accomplished during the last year and was presented, what's your overall view as you've attended and then left the meeting? Yeah. So I think this year in ASH was the year of taking the tools that have been transformational for CAR-T, for bispecifics, for antibodies that have been FDA approved doing the combination studies, and we're building on those results and combining therapies, moving away from the harsh chemotherapies. And so we're seeing basically this gradual advance. It typically happens over many years to get better therapies that are more effective and safer for the patient. That's number one. Number two is the use of diagnostic tools, for example, minimal residual disease, also coming into play to learn how deep a response is as a surrogate for the depth of response and ultimately overall survival, as well as the use of single cell analysis, where we can analyze many cells at once and identify what's going on in the single cells and the immune cell environment surrounding those tumor cells. I have to say, it's very exciting. I know some of the trials that were presented this year we absolutely address this, looking at combining novel agents where all of a sudden you're starting to see even better response rates. So I want to dive right in. Let's talk about myelofibrosis. So I'm just going to add historically, at least during my career, as I've treated people with myelofibrosis, unfortunately, for so many years, we had little to offer other supportive care. And then there was a lot of excitement the last years about ruxolitinib. Tell us about some of the trials that have added to the benefits seen with ruxolitinib. Right. So there are three trials. Really, the one most advanced is a combination of ruxolitinib with pelabrecib. This pelabrecib is a BET inhibitor, so it's mechanistically distinct from ruxolitinib. And that is a trial that has combined pelabrecib with ruxolitinib versus just ruxolitinib alone. So it's a phase three comparator trial. Now, ruxolitinib, I want to remind the audience, give us a uh, spleen reduction, a significant spleen reduction to about 35% of the patients. The combination gave a spleen reduction of uh, in size of about 65%. So it's 65 versus 35%. That's quite right. uh, significant. Almost doubled. 
Right, almost double. And in fact, the other trials with Novitaclax, which is a BCL inhibitor, plus ruxolitinib gave something like the same versus ruxolitinib. And then there was a trial with an LSD-1 inhibitor, again, mechanistically distinct, giving spleen reductions in the same ballpark. The audience has to understand ruxolitinib can reduce spleen size. It also reduces something called total symptom score. And those two markers, really the primary and secondary endpoints, have ultimately translated into an increase in overall survival when you give ruxolitinib alone, and that came after the FDA approval. That doubled it, overall survival, from about two and a half years to about five years. So those two markers, spleen reduction of a significant value and total symptom score, were translated into overall survival. The palacirubid plus ruxolitinib gives spleen reduction, but the total symptom score changes are sort of on the borderline of significance. So we're going to have to see how these two agents, two endpoints combine that will ultimately lead to approval or not uh, by the FDA. But the point is, palabrasib is now lined up for approval or at least consideration by the FDA as a additive agent to ruxolitinib therapy that will reduce spleen size and we hope will actually also translate into enhanced overall survival for these patients. So I can't help but ask you, but if you could prognosticate or just looking toward the future, might we see three drug combinations or more for that matter? Where do you think this field will go? Any predictions? Yeah, I think three-drug combinations are definitely a possibility. We're certainly seeing that in AML. We're seeing it in multiple myeloma. We've had it for multiple myeloma. We're seeing that in AML. We can talk a little bit about the new AML drugs. But combination therapy is basically standard of care now for many different blood cancers. So this is not terribly surprising. What it does mean is that the disease is heterogeneous and you have to actually hit it from multiple angles. And it's quite frequent that one drug alone is just not going to achieve cures. This to remind the audience that for acute lymphoblastic leukemia, it was really figuring out the combinations of different therapies to ultimately give those children with B-type ALL 90% cure rate. But it took many, many years in clinical trials to figure out the optimal combinations. And in fact, we're still working on it today. Yeah, absolutely. There were some exciting studies discussed at ASH on mantle cell lymphoma. So what were the ones there that sort of picked your interest? Right. And again, there was a large phase three trial, so-called Sepatico, where abrutinib and venetoclax were combined and compared it to abrutinib plus placebo. In that trial for MCL, and this is first-line patients, by the way, the median progression-free survival for abrutinib plus venetoclax was 32 months versus 22 months for abrutinib alone. So that's a significant improvement. And again, this trial also used MRD, minimal residual disease, as a point to determine whether to stop the therapy or not. Mantle cell lymphoma is still regarded as, for the most patients, not curative, but this combination is sort of leaning in in that direction as we improve therapies. I will point out that abrutinib does cause more atrial fibrillation than other BTK inhibitors. That's its target. The target of abrutinib is BTK. Um, there are other BTK inhibitors on the market that have less atrial fibrillation and less hypertension. Nevertheless, 
thinking that you can simply just switch in a safer BTK inhibitor of a calibrutinib, xanabrutinib, plus venetoclax, and achieve the same results as in this trial with Sympatico did, still has yet to be determined. But the combination of, again, hitting the CLL with two different mechanisms looks to be highly effective in MCL. So there was some data on pertabrutinib. Can you tell us about that drug? Yeah. So the drugs I mentioned before, abrutinib, acalabrutinib, xanabrutinib, all have the same mechanism of action. They are covalent inhibitors that actually bind to BTK. That is what I mean is they will come in contact with BTK and then literally chemically linked to the BTK. When that happens, the signaling transductions pathway for BTK is turned off and the growth of the tumor should stop. Pertabrutinib is a non-covalent inhibitor. And the reason why this is critically important is because for all the covalent inhibitors, the key stumbling block is resistance to these inhibitors developed because the point of contact of covalent linkage to the BTK is mutated, and so the drug will fail to work. Pertabrutinib will overcome that because it doesn't necessarily have to bind to the residue, which is the covalent linking site. And it was shown in mantle cell patients, this is the relapsed refractory patients, that the median progression-free survival is about 5.6 months, and the median overall survival is two years in patients that have failed the covalent inhibitors. And I will point out that about 50% of these patients had P53 mutations, which typically means it's going to have a poor outcome across the board, really, even though BTK inhibitors, all of them, can work in P53 mutant patients. The P53 mutant patients tend to perform less well than in wild-type patients. So in a sense, I mean, besides being refractory, they also biologically had more refractory disease. That's right. Now, the question that comes to mind is, so what is the optimal BTK inhibitor to use, and what's the sequence in which they should be used in? I think this is data that we'll be seeing in the next years to come. I want to ask you about CLL, because for us that are in practice, we tend to see a lot of patients with this. Many of them, we still do a watch-and-wait approach partially based on the feeling over many years that this is not a curable disease and that watching and waiting, we can have as much benefit for patients as treating them up front. Has there been discussion about treating more patients up front? Do we have data on that or is that still going to be, you know, sort of deciding case by case? Right. So first of all, the drugs years ago to treat CLL were harsh chemotherapeutic drugs. And the concept of treating a watch-and-wait patient, the decision to go with a harsh chemotherapy drug also typically made many physicians sort of pause and ask whether it's time that we should hold back. Of course, the other question is, do you get the same result for CLL where you treat a watch-and-wait patient as opposed to let the disease go full-blown? And that's still really sort of an open question. What's come along with CLL is that the standard of care has really switched over from FCR, the chemoimmunotherapy, to the BTK inhibitors, abrutinib. And in in particular, in this ASH meeting, abrutinib plus venetoclax was placed against FCR to determine if it had a better outcome, which it did. So, for example, the abrutinib plus venetoclax combination gave eight 
fold less deaths than FCR. And the overall survival in the Brutinib plus Venetoclax combination was better than FCR with a hazard ratio of 0.3. So it's highly significant. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, in this trial, MRD, minimal residual disease, was used as a determination whether the therapy can be stopped. And MRD negativity was achieved in about 60% of these patients. So while the thinking is, and the proof is that a brutinib or venetoclax alone is not curative for CLL, uh, the combination is going to give probably better results towards a cure. Nevertheless, we know that resistance to a brutinib and venetoclax individually can occur. And the expectation is this combination for most patients will just not be curative. We're still going to need better therapies, possibly even the cellular therapy for these patients, which is coming along as well. All right. On that topic, so there were some interesting uh, results, uh, obviously, with CAR-T in general, but how about CAR-T in mantle cells? Right. So for CAR-T in mantle cells still, you know, and approved therapy for relapsed refractory patients, we did see, and that's for a target on those cells called CD19. So CD19 is a marker on uh, mantle cells uh, lymphoma and CD19 CAR-T T-cell therapy. This is autologous where the T-cells are taken out of the patient, produced at the lab and then shipped back to patients, can be highly effective, but typically not curative for most patients. There is new targets being considered for CAR-T on mantle cells. One of them is called BAF. R, B-A-F-F dash R. And even though the data is early, there's data from uh, the City of Hope investigators to show that BAF R CAR T can be effective in controlling, at least in the initial patient's uh, mantle cell lymphoma. So that's exciting because it's a totally new target for CAR T therapy for mantle cell patients. And I will remind the audience that, of course, the basis of resistance to CD19 CAR-T therapy is complex, but one of those is due to loss of target CD19 on the surface of those cells. So we think that BAF, a second shot on goal for using BAFR CAR is exciting if it continues to show good data. Since we're on CAR-T, I actually want to talk about CAR-T, but in another disease, and there were some interesting updates at ASH, the ZUMA-12 trial looking at CAR-T in refractory large B-cell lymphoma. Right. So the ZUMA-12 trial, and let's back up a second. The ZUMA-1 was used for approval for patients who had lymphoma, DLBCL, and uh, a version of that used for mantle cell. Highly effective therapy, gives a median overall response rate for those patients. About 40% of those patients will have long-term disease control. The question is how to bring those survival curves up. And so there are many different versions of CAR-T that are in development. I think as Carl June put it, you know, this is really sort of tip of the iceberg that we're going through multiple generations of CAR-T therapy, how to improve it. One of the things that we learned uh, at ASH, we, uh, we, there are two groups, one at Sloan Kettering, one at Cornell, that actually have looked at the immune environment to try to understand what is going on to control the ability of these CAR T cells to kill tumors. And what was found is that when patients have an inflammatory phenotype, 
just by looking at what is the nature of the cells in the environment around the tumor, that patients who have a more inflammatory type tend to have a worse response to CD9 CAR-T, and that was validated in two different groups. So what I'm saying is that we're beginning to fine-tune the CAR-T simply by understanding what the immune environment is around the tumor type. So interesting. And where do you see that going? In other words, given that information, which may be available, just some of it just from looking at biopsies and analyzing the inflammatory component, but how might that modify our therapies? Right. So, you know, this is going to come down to simplifying the diagnostics and routinely applying them. And beyond that, learning if we can use a surrogate, that is, what's in the plasma or what's in circulating cells in the plasma, or let's say even a bone marrow biopsy, to what is the status of the immune environment, in particular in lymphoma, where it's very difficult to get a second biopsy in those patients, although in some cases it will. For a relapse refractory patient, getting a second biopsy, you usually go by the original biopsy. And that may be predictive for what the inflammatory environment is like, but really you'd want to know what is the state of the tumor at relapse. And the gold standard is the biopsy. But that may not be available. So we're going to have to learn, A, how to simplify these diagnostic tools and see if there is a surrogate in the blood that can be used to determine what is the inflammatory state of the tumor sort of as a surrogate marker. So I just want to reflect for a minute. It has always seemed too good to be true that neutrophil lymphocyte ratios are correlated with prognosis in lung cancer. I published a paper on the risk of relapse in lung cancer. And yet it does sort of point out that some of the clues may just be on, again, relatively simple testing, like you were saying. Yeah, that's the hope. I will say that the inflammatory analysis that is being done out of the work at Cornell is being done by something called spatial omics, where you can actually ask what is going on in the tumor cell, what is going on in the the T cells on an individual level, and see on the slide where those cells are. Are they sitting next to the tumor, or can they not even penetrate the tumor? So those two pieces of information are critically important. Yeah, exciting, exciting stuff. You know, I wanted to mention with Zuma 12, I thought it was very impressive that three years, 36 months in patients who had CAR-T there uh, who were refractory. Overall survival, 81% and progression-free survival, 75%. The Zuma 12 is interesting because, as I said, the original approvals were not based on these patients. These are patients now who are refractory to the initial treatment and after a short period of time, switch them right over to CAR-T, thinking that these are the patients, if they're not responding initially, are going to need some other therapy. And you're right, you know, median progression-free survival, three years, 75%, pretty remarkable. Although, you know, sample size of 37 patients still studied on the small side. Yeah, exciting. I want to switch gears for a couple of minutes to myeloid malignancies. What did you find exciting? So I think the most exciting thing in the AML world is a new targeted therapy called Rebimenib and a sister agent that was not actually discussed, but also another small molecule inhibitor. So Rebimenib was given to patients who are relapse refractory AML who had the target mutation 
and that is a KMT2A fusion. This is a, a protein that fuses with a typically MLL. It's an MLL men infusion. And when patients have that, they do typically quite poorly, even poorer than even though the worst outcomes for AML. When this drug was given to patients who have that type of fusion, they achieved deep remission. So the overall survival was about 60%. The complete response or complete hematologic response was 23%. The median duration was 6.4 months, and the median overall survival was eight months. That's a pretty remarkable result for these patients and puts the data in a category that would be suitable for consideration by the FDA for approval. That's important because, as I said before, attacking AML by multiple angles is critically important. So we have the FLT3 inhibitors, we have IDH inhibitors, and of course we have the standard cytotoxic therapies. I think what we're going to see is if Revolumab can get approved, we're going to see combination therapies with that agent or sister agents. That's one's coming out of Syndex. There's another one from Cura Therapeutics that's right behind it. Um, and uh, to be um, to, to be honest, uh, the LLS is supported the discovery of the men in MLL inhibitors about almost 10 years ago by Dr. Yolanta Grambeka in our grant program. We moved that out to Cura Therapeutics, which has the uh, Ziftamenib comparator, a similar drug, which is also right behind Revimenib. So I think we're going to see at least one agent, probably two agents, hopefully approved by the FDA within the next couple of years. Very exciting. Also, we talked earlier about venetoclax and it's been used in leukemia, especially with vasocytidine. And it looks like that's now being moved down into the setting of patients with myelodysplasia. Anything new to report there? Yeah, I don't have the MDS data at my fingertips, but there was good data presented with MDS. So venasa combination it is effective in AML. We do see definite resistance to it. It is effective in, in now in MDS. I think we're also seeing an evaluation of what is the right dose and schedule with venetoclax. Currently, it's approved for a 28-day cycle in frontline combination with azacitidine, but it's clear that many patients can't tolerate the 28-day cycle with venetoclax, and we're now seeing data coming out exploring reduced dose and schedule. So for example, 14 days of venetoclax or even just once a week venetoclax with interesting data coming out suggesting that you can get the same efficacy or similar efficacy results and avoiding some of the toxicities with 28-day venetoclax. And I think that we're going to see that in AML and MDS. One of the things I've enjoyed talking about, Ash, with you, especially hearing about the myeloma, because there's been a lot of exciting changes in that field from, again, a disease that, at least at the beginning of my career, we had so little to offer, and now we have a lot. There was data published on adding daratumumab to VRD with four-year data. Tell us about that, if you would. Right. So daratumumab, anti-CD38 antibody, it's approved for myeloma. This study, conducted by Sonneveld et al., was comparing daratumumab plus RVD versus RVD, and the progression-free survival after four years was 84% for the daratumumab combination versus 68% for just RVD. 
So that was a pretty impressive result in basically moving up the progression-free survival curve and hopefully the median overall survival in those patients as well. So that's an exciting result now with basically quad therapy. And as we spoke about, you know, combination therapies is the combination du jour. And that's kind of what we're seeing across the board. Now, what does this actually mean for treatment of myeloma? What it would suggest is that this is a new standard of care uh, for to treat frontline multiple myeloma patients. So there's a couple of remaining questions. One is, is it going to actually increase overall survival? The second question is, is it affordable? The combinations with, with daratumumab are going to be expensive to treat. And the question is, can all our patients get equal access to this? And will they get equal coverage? That's going to be a difficulty as all these therapies get combined. They get quite expensive. Absolutely. We talked some about CAR-T. What's happening in terms of CAR-T and myeloma? So CAR-T for myeloma, there is a new CAR-T. It's a BCMA-directed CAR-T. And I'll remind the audience that there is approved BCMA CAR-Ts. The new one on the block is something called DDBCMA CAR-T. And it's a newly engineered CAR-T that looks to be, from initial results, it's performing very similar to the efficacy of Carvicti, which is the uh, Janssen BCMA CAR-T. It's giving a complete response rate of 76% and a progression-free survival of 12 months of 75%. So that looks encouraging that we'll have a a new BCMA CAR-T coming along. Excellent. Hodgkin's disease, I mean, that's a disease where uh, we've made tremendous progress. What, What was new this year? So for Hodgkin's disease, ABVD, standard of care, it's a cytotoxic combination for chemotherapeutic agents with substantial toxicities along the way. And what's been done now is to drop out the B, the bleomycin, which can give lung toxicity, that's number one, and do now a combination of AVD with a anti-PD-1 antibody, nivolumab, and compare that with uh, brentuximab vidotin, which is etcetris, which is a antibody drug conjugate to CD30. So now it's nivolumab AVD versus brentuximab vidotin versus AVD. And what happened, the result of that trial, and it's a large thousand patient trial, a very large trial, what got reported this time around was to look at a subset of patients who were younger, uh, the progression-free survival was about 94% versus 88% in favor of nivolumab AVD in younger patients. That data actually was very similar to the data reported at the ASCO meeting about six months ago, looking at the entire population, where again, the one-year progression-free survival was about 94% versus 86%. And beyond that, uh, the nivolumab combination had less neurotoxicity, less bone pain, and also decreased the need for radiation in those patients, which we know can cause late-stage complications. So nivolumab AVD looks like a new standard of care for Hodgkin's lymphoma patients. What incredible progress from the 1960s, you know, with MOP in the 60% range of long-term survival, and now being up over 90. How amazing. And, you know, obviously I wish we could do this for all of our patients, and I hope one day we will. What's new in T-cell lymphoma? 
So T-cell lymphoma, there is new CAR-T therapy against those T-cells. And remember, if you're going to target a T-cell lymphoma and use T-cells to do that, T-cell CAR-T cells, you've got to engineer the CAR-T cells appropriately. And so there are two of the targets on T-cell lymphomas are CD7 and CD5. There's CAR-Ts now being made to both of those targets. One of the most interesting ones that I find is that there is a CD5 CAR-T where CD5 is knocked out on the CAR-T cell so it can't kill itself. As an added benefit, knocking out CD5 in the CAR-T cells actually heightens the activity of those cells. And what hopefully is going to, at least in preclinical models, enhances its killing capacity. And that CD5 CAR-T is prepared to go into clinical trials in the very near future. Beyond that, CD7 CAR-T has already shown good activity from China-based trials. And so there's T-cell lymphoma CAR-T therapy on the horizon. Super. And finally, I wanted to ask you about CMML. Yeah. So chronic myelomonocytic leukemia is a rare leukemia, about a thousand patients a year, which has a poor outcome. The median overall survival is about 30 months. 15 to 30 percent of these patients will convert over to AML. And so there's really no good therapies, even though azacitidine is typically used. It really doesn't have a whole lot of much benefit compared to hydroxyurea. There's new therapies that are being explored in the clinic for CMML. The Leukemia Lymphoma Society has a major effort underway to fund new experimental therapies and understand the disease better to get better therapies and understand mechanistically what is going on in CMML patients. So we're excited to be supporting that work. So Lee, it sounds like uh, ASH was a great meeting this year. As you're reflecting on it, what are the takeaways from this meeting and things that you've been thinking about? If I were to make the major conclusions from this meeting is immunotherapy is proving of great increasing benefit in the treatment of lymphomas and multimyelomas. In AML, it's really precision medicine that looks most promising. That's one. Two is we're moving away from cytotoxic chemotherapy that is going to improve quality of life for patients. I want to thank all of you for listening to this terrific episode. And I want to take the opportunity to thank Dr. Lee Greenberger, who is Chief Scientific Officer and Senior Vice President at Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Lee, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient to LLS, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and support resources. LLS also provides other resources for patients, survivors, and their families, including a series of podcasts that can be found at lls.org support. And I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. We look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. 
Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.